Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, welcome to Unheard. I'm Freddie Sayers. I'm still in San Francisco. In fact, technically, I'm in Oakland. I'm in a basement speakeasy that hasn't even opened yet. It's probably the trendiest place we've ever been. And I'm sitting here with one of our favorite writers, Matt Crawford. Thanks for coming all the way over here. So what we're here to talk about is cars. Because, first of all, you and I just traveled in a driverless car a couple of evenings ago. And I want to talk about that. And it feels like this momentous shift that is happening but you are the guy to talk about cars with. You wrote a book called Why We Drive, which was published in 2020, a few years ago. And in a way, like so often, you have been ahead of the times because motorists and drivers are pretty angry. Where I'm from in London, there is a new 20 mile per hour speed limit that is being rolled out all over Greater London. There is this thing called a ULES, the ultra low emission zone, which basically puts very heavy fines on any cars that are deemed non-compliant with new environmental standards. So there is, quote unquote, a war on motorists going on in London. But it's all across Europe and the wider world. There are people in the Netherlands, um, in Spain. There have been the truckers in Canada. It really feels like somehow drivers people who like to drive are almost forming a coalition and somehow resisting or trying to resist what they see as a development they don't like. It is interesting. I mean, you could also mention the yellow vests and there have been protests uh, about the Autobahn. Uh, I think the Germans have some saying that translates as, was it free citizens, free drivers, something like that. And then you had this big fight between um, the London taxi drivers and Uber muscling in there. It does seem like people's attitudes about driving have gotten a bit prickly, as though the political authorities that regulate it somehow lack legitimacy. Somehow a lot of these populist energies have gotten focused uh, on the automobile. And conversely, as you said, a lot of kind of regulatory enthusiasm is now looking at the car with a kind of determination Skepticism. to... Yeah. So let's go back to your book for a moment, because I feel like 
quite often this is framed as a class thing and drivers are presented as kind of backward, hokey engine people who are probably have all sorts of unsavory political views. And therefore, if life becomes more inconvenient for them, it's probably a shift in the right direction. It kind of feels like that. But your book, Why We Drive, goes a little bit deeper than that and suggests that actually the action of driving, of moving yourself around in a machine that you understand is quite existentially important. Is that is that fair? I like to start with the skateboard or the bicycle. Mm-hmm. Um, these you know, simple implements that sort of extend and transform our native bodily powers in, in ways that, you know, it, a bicycle almost becomes like a prosthetic, right? An extension of your body. It just becomes fully kind of integrated into your sort of bodily habitation of the world and moving through it. And I think something similar could be said of cars, especially sort of relatively primitive and lighter cars where there's a lot of feedback from the road um, and a kind of directness of control, you know, sort of seat of your pants. So I think a lot of people get quite attached to the experience of driving as, um, well, well, Nietzsche said, uh, joy is the feeling of your power increasing. And I think that you can give that a reading not as a kind of scary uh, doctrine about um, power seeking, but as just a uh, an insight into how um, you know s- some technologies seem to kind of extend us out into the world in ways that are deeply pleasurable. Mm. So your power increasing is not political power. What it is is a, it's a sense of being alive, almost a sense that you have the ability to move around this yeah. planet. And I think the absence of remote control is really a key part of that. Um, you know, the driverless cars, um, the sense of being kind of passively carried around, I think that gets to a pretty deep, um, I don't want to say anxiety, but a kind of uh, revulsion to being a passenger. Uh, there's all kinds of dystopian movies where driverless cars figure. And uh, one of my favorites is Wall-E, where so it's this animated film where you have these um, sort of grotesquely fat humanoid beings um, being ferried around in their hovering car-like things, slurping from their cup holders and watching their screens with some sort of entertainment piped in from afar. And their faces sort of beam with this sort of opiate pleasure. Uh, they seem to be kind of slackened and completely safe and somehow less than human. So I think that's a, a sort of heightened or exaggerated picture of what disturbs us about this. Also unmanly, is it fair to bring that in? Because it feels like that sort of passenger character who is driven around staring at the screen is the opposite of a kind of strong person using a machine. Yeah, or even sort of genderless, right? Sort of gender blobs. Um, Yeah, so right, I guess there is a kind of masculine ideal of self-reliance, right? Certainly in America, 
the sort of story we tell about ourselves with the West and all that. Self-reliance figures prominently in that. Um, and just, yeah, sort of moving about the world by the exercise of your own powers. Um, so even like using GPS, which I use all the time, I'll admit, but you do, you turn your brain off and there's a kind of passivity and dependence. And I think the push for driverless cars is an instance of this wider pattern of um, sort of for the sake of convenience and in the name of safety, we're kind of lured further into passivity and dependence. Mm. So there's a sort of line that you cross then where a technology stops being enhancing and making you more capable, more powerful, more alive, and starts to be reducing, making you more dependent. I just want to try and identify where that line is, because you said you start with a skateboard. That makes complete sense. Like You can imagine someone going fast down a hill on the skateboard, feeling alive. And then what you talk about is a kind of car with a comprehensible machine where you're getting feedback from the road and you're in charge of driving it. I guess you could fix it at home or on the road if it broke, you, you know how it functions. Somehow these digital machines, which you, you don't know how they work, you can't fix them. I mean, a Tesla, you, you, you literally just can't fix. Someone else has to come and do it for you. Already takes us on the road to a driverless car. What's the line? Well, I think the intelligibility is a crucial thing. Is Can you sort of by inspection um, sort of at least imagine how the thing works and does it invite your intervention? Does it, you know, does it invite um, the effort to understand it or is it just completely opaque and sort of, you know, like the shimmering obelisk at the beginning of the film 2001 that the uh, humanoids are all entranced by? I think... Um, you know, sort of being master of your own stuff. There's a deep intellectual pleasure in taking things apart um, and trying to understand them. I think that's um, a kind of quasi-philosophic impulse, tinkering. Um, and, but the other feature that I think um, really kind of rubs a lot of people the wrong way is this idea of uh, remote control. So it's not so much that it's digital. I mean, conceivably, you could become an expert coder in the various software systems that run the car and such. And It'd be tough with a Tesla, I think. Sure. I mean, but still, if it's, I think what people don't want is a sense that they're somehow um, geared into this kind of bureaucratic machine that stands behind the technology, you know, that you matrix. Yeah, right. Exactly. So and that's, you know, that's not a merely um, social, I mean, um, science fiction-y kind of idea these days. It's real. It's real. So actually, potentially some of those older cars, the people are now, they're not being nudged away from using, they are being compelled to stop using them in London because there are very substantial fees just to drive one. So if you have a non-compliant 10-year-old car, whether it's 11 pounds or 17 pounds, it's unreasonably expensive, so you just can't use it on a daily basis. Those machines are potentially the good ones in that they are enhancing people's agency 
and yeah, faced with a, some kind of crisis, which is always at the back of people's minds, and particularly at the moment when there's so much instability and hazard, those old cars will still work. You can still drive yourself from A to B if you can get fuel. But your Tesla or your electric car, and certainly your driverless car, just won't. Right, because they can be disabled remotely. So we saw with the trucker protest in Canada, you had this political action that was sort of mercilessly crushed by, you know, seizing the bank accounts of people who contributed money to them. Um, and with, I believe, I could be wrong about this, but I believe it was shortly after that that the Canadians... Um, I don't know if they passed the bill or at least it was floated um, to mandate that all trucks be remotely uh, shut offable. So you can see there that there's a political taste for, um, you know, preventing any such occurrence again and again. It, you know, this is one of the, these instances where. I think a lot of Western leaders look to China somewhat enviously as a, you know, as a control society. And given the just kind of metastasizing systems of surveillance and control in our own society, um, the car, as it has been thus far, sort of stands out as, yeah, kind of... Um, you know, a last reserve of some kind of capacity to uh, stand alone. And again, careful what you wish for, because the flip side of that is if you can turn them all off, someone else can turn them all off. I mean, the the wartime scenario, we know that Teslas are largely dependent on Chinese production facilities. You know, it doesn't take a huge amount of imagination to think that this could be dangerous. You know, if, if a central point of control could actually move everyone's cars around or turn them all off or drive them into each other, it's a danger. Yeah. And at least in the US, I mean, we don't have nearly the electrical grid that you would need to uh, charge all these, all these cars you know, according to the vision of um, this being laid forth. And of course, building that infrastructure isn't glamorous politically. Um, and the whole green energy mandate um, is this massive, I think, diversion of investment to sort of party-aligned actors that will tend toward energy poverty, which will hurt the working class and the middle class. So all these things are kind of part of this larger phenomena of I think, um, you know, transportation policy and energy policy being captured by a kind of um, party state, as I call it. But even just physically, electric cars pretty much contain you within a city or within the confines of where there are sufficient charging points. That romantic foundational vision of America with the huge open road, yeah. interstate travel, driving west. None of that is really possible. In yeah, a, when shit in gets real, you're going to want to be able car. to uh, hit the road and get the hell out of Dodge, right? So, I mean, but that really is, it, it's kind of almost sounds comic when you say it. And I think some of our metropolitan 
viewers in European cities might think that sounds, yeah, funny, like a pastiche of American sense of freedom. But actually, it it is true, and it, it and people do worry about that. And I think that spirit is very much still here. Yeah, I think so. The cowboys, the American cowboys, the ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. So this leads us to the question of what we should actually do about all this, because we all live in the world in 2023. These technologies are everywhere. My suspicion is the driverless travel that you and I experienced, I wouldn't say enjoyed a couple of days ago, won't be the last. Probably that technology will succeed. What is a real life practical rebellion? And how will it not just seem straightforwardly reactionary, Luddite, easy to dismiss? Like, what should we do? What kind of cars should we drive? Well, I think the first thing to notice is just this feeling of futility that people have about putting up any kind of resistance, right? I mean, in San Francisco, you have these sort of street gorillas putting cones on the driverless cars to, to paralyze them. And you have quite a few cases of them impeding emergency vehicles because they stall out and they have to be rebooted and such. But, you know, like the, so the, just earlier this month, the California Public Utilities Commission approved to have these driverless cars on the streets of San Francisco in large numbers. Um, turns out, you know, one of the four commissioners is former general counsel for Cruz, the General Motors version of this. So I think, you know, hovering in the background here is this sense of a corporatocracy where the, you know, the, the will of citizens is really not, doesn't come into play. And in fact, when Pew polls people about their attitudes toward driverless cars, majorities of them are not interested. They're suspicious of it. They prefer to drive themselves. So this is not in response to consumer demand. It's a kind of for-profit social engineering, you might say. It's also, this is speaking of, that, that guy sounds like he was driving himself, I would say. <laughs> not necessarily safely, but there's also this sense of a kind of uh, elite idea of progress. Yeah which is otherwise known as inevitable change, uh, that if you are the wrong side of it, it makes you a bad person. And that this technology is part of what they see as progress. I mean, it's an expensive solution to a non-problem, I think. Human beings are actually pretty good at driving. Um, so this is another case of a kind of transfer of wealth, you know, sort of a grab from Silicon Valley trying to grab profits from Detroit, you might say, um, you know, Waymo versus you know, Ford or whatever. So yeah, there's always a, a narrative of progress. Uh, so you don't buy any of the arguments. I have to make them about just releasing human time. It's saying, well, if we don't need drivers, okay, some people might find it fun to drive. A lot of people don't. Those people driving you around or driving, you know, while driving yourself around suddenly have these other hours where you can be creative and yeah. fulfilled and no, I, productive. I, I uh, feel the force of those arguments. I'm, I'm sure there are occasions I would totally want the option of a driverless car. One of the difficulties is when uh, autonomous cars have to share the road with human drivers. That has turned out 
to be the big engineering challenge that's far harder to solve than was thought even a few years ago. So we've gotten to the point now where in San Francisco at night, uh, when traffic is light, they're allowing uh, these driverless cars. But there's still a lot of sort of breezy talk about outlawing human drivers from the road in order to make the road more hospitable to the driverless cars. And you could uh, imagine that in a small number of years being a, a serious proposal. It would greatly alleviate the challenge. Um, and given the kind of this the sort of political sense of disempowerment um, that a lot of people have, I think, you know, that could actually be on the table. So what would you have then? You'd have the infrastructure of a city uh, made hospitable to automation, including driverless cars. These You'd have an urban operating system, essentially, uh, that's um, designed and installed by some cartel of tech firms. And you can be pretty sure it would not be uh, amenable to sort of democratic processes, and nor would the sort of code be accessible to inspection. This is all very proprietary. It has to be because that's what makes you know the smart city the next trillion dollar frontier. And, and of course, if you are considered transgressive or if you are an undesirable person to that most likely private company you won't be able to use one of their cars. And so you won't be able to move around. You can imagine sort of terms of service that are, you know, have all kinds of stipulations. And I think you can view this as part of this long arc of um, sort of high modernist urban planning that goes way back. Um, you know, this aspiration to remake the city starting from a blank slate, uh, which often you know, creates these model cities that nobody actually wants to live in because the human element is somehow kind of squashed. Um, Jane Jacobs wrote a beautiful book. I think it's something like The Rise and Fall of Great American Cities, where she just as a kind of um, ethnographer shows how like a street works at a fine grain level as this kind of social place and how uh, neighborhoods get sort of vacated by these sort of planning schemes that are hatched from on high and render the city kind of vacuous. So I think we should revisit some of these critiques of modernist urban planning by way of trying to get a handle on what the tech firms are up to with uh, the smart city and driverless car. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f? are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap we're cutting the price of mint unlimited from 30 dollars a month to just 15 dollars a month give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch 45 dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees promote for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I just want to go back to the, the challenge I gave a moment ago because I, I think maybe we accepted it too readily this idea that we would be liberated by not having to drive not having a driver or driving ourselves because that in a way gets a, the the bigger argument for a lot of the this sense of inevitability about technology that it's convenient is convenient always better uh, is it true that if you're liberated from the, the more fundamental, supposedly mundane aspects of just living, feeding yourself, moving around, sorting your car out, is your life necessarily going to get better? I feel like that's the at core is the argument because the techno-utopians genuinely believe that the higher up we can go in Maslow's hierarchy of needs or whatever it is, the more we can be liberated from mundane tasks <clears throat> and we can hand that over to computers, the more fulfilled or creative or the better we will live, the more alive we will be. Well, so it feels like you almost think the opposite. Well, I mean, if you go far enough down that road, the whole world begins to look like one big assisted living facility um, or the Wally um, picture. There's a, there's a psychologist named Kelly Lambert who's done some interesting stuff on what she calls effort-driven rewards. And she, she works with rats, but the idea is that um, just securing your own basic sort of physical existence, uh, I mean, we're, we've evolved to do that. And when you make everything um, sort of effortless, uh, people become anxious and depressed. And of course, a lot of that leisure that we think in principle could be freed up by not having to do things for ourselves, will instead instead be filled with uh, entertainments that sort of plug us into the hive mind. Um, you know, I think I think Americans in particular don't really know how to do true leisure, a true sort of Sabbath, a time of repose. Uh, we tend to fill up everything, um, so. Paul Kingsnorth, someone we both know, has is an example of someone who is trying to act against this trend. He has moved himself and his family to a farmstead in the west of Ireland. 
Uh, I'm not allowed to talk about his composting toilet with him because it's become such a cliche that everyone asks him about. But that is a nice example of how he is living more directly. He is literally more aware of the consequences of his day-to-day life. Uh, it feels like there is a bit of a movement beyond him towards those kind of ideas, trying to resist the complexifying of life, resist technology to try to become more connected is maybe that's something that we should think about this idea of the spirit being fed by being more connected to the earth more connected to nature and the sort of physical reality of living in the world as a pretty much spiritual source well this is the perennial thing isn't it the sort of romantic um, back to the land or back to nature or kind of revolt against um, not just technology but technocracy I think the entwining of these systems with um, well I was going to say government but it's even hard to say what is government these days I mean uh, we're governed in all kinds of minute ways by um, you know the platform firms tech firms and such and the very idea of sort of governmentality has become so sort of devolved and diffuse so yeah people do want to escape. you know escape it to rehumanize themselves i guess for some people it's back to the land land of course is scarce and expensive for some people i think it's tinkering and trying to get a handle on their own sort of material existence and become self-reliant in various ways you have people homeschooling, just trying to unplug from what feels like a, a voracious Borg that feeds on individual agency. Is there a good version of that and a scary version, do you think? It feels like for some people, the answer is pretty much to burn it all down. Uh, and you do get a sense that there are people who would who see the only way out of this as destroying the Borg, um, which sounds a little bit violent. It sounds like it could lead to future tensions. And to put it mildly. I'm thinking of Fight Club. Is that what you're thinking of? There is a sort of what to some people would be quite frightening idea that if there are enough people who feel alienated enough people who don't like the technology, don't like the sophisticated, supposedly sophisticated life, that they're going to somehow come with pitchforks and destroy it so they can go back to a simpler way of being. Do you, do you think we should worry about that? I don't see much prospect of the pitchforks coming out. We're too well entertained. Um, I mean, that's, you know, a whole other sort of type of technology is... is those that enthrall us and I mean virtual reality now uh, combining that with AI I imagine will be uh, sucked into um, worlds that are not real in this and I think what I mean by that is that they are um, sort of constructed worlds um, constructed for profit and engineered from afar that um, 
will probably offer us some kind of simulacrum of agency. I'm sure there's a, a menu of different, you know, options for action within them. Maybe they respond to us. They will sort of flatter us with a sense of mastery, perhaps. The thing about real reality is that it surprises us. It um, it's sort of inexhaustibly rich. It can't be represented to completion. It contains mystery. Um, I say that both as a former, you know, physics guy um, and as someone with intuitions of a sort of that there is a created order that has a kind of benevolence to it and a, and some some elements that aren't fully graspable and masterable by us. And that, I think, is a source of um, kind of renewal when you put yourself in nature or even in the built environment, the human environment, but but you know material, there's always um, scope for serendipity and surprise and sort of renewing your sense of wonder in the world. So how do we defend that then? It sounded like you feel like this is only going one way and you weren't very impressed by my suggestion that there are bands of people with pitchforks who are going to come and destroy the citadel. It feels like the power is pretty clear in one direction. In what sort of rebellions should we try and do? You know, you, you talk about you tinkering in your shop, on your car. What should someone in a city do? How do we try and make this real for people that how what what are there micro rebellions that we can do to unplug? I think every time we meet face to face, like we're doing right now, we're engaged in sort of the permanent um, human possibility of encountering one another in a real way. And um, and I think that will always be available to us. I think we get a little too maybe doomerish about the Borg um, because in fact, you know, the, the ordinary pleasures of existence and of sociality remain available to us. And I think we have to, um, you know, throw ourselves into that with courage and hope. To bring it back to the car, we started off talking about all these political rebellions that seem connected to motorist groups. Maybe this is one such moment where there is actually a political fight that's worth engaging in. Maybe those people should defend their right to drive whatever cars they want. Maybe, Hell yeah. maybe that's, but maybe that's realistic. That's yeah, the kind no, of I, I rebellion think, that's yeah. not burning down. And I right. think it's just, it's a, more like a line sure. where you say, actually, I'm going to keep my car and I'm going to drive it. Yeah, sign me up. Should we formally encourage everyone to... Uh, we hereby inaugurate <laughs> the uh, Freedom to Drive movement. Uh, send your contribution to the number uh, below the screen. To Unheard, Matthew Crawford, 
Thank you so much. Yeah, it was a pleasure. You heard it here first. The Freedom to Drive movement has been inaugurated here in a basement in Oakland. That was great. Thank you to Matt Crawford and thank you to you for watching. I don't know if any of that resonated with you, but it certainly did with me. And uh, thanks for tuning in. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.